I'm Zeb Ryder, and most of you guys know me, and Andrea over there, and Azariah, who's in the nursery right now. Um, just going to give, I was trying to figure out the best time to give a little update on what we're doing, so I figured I'd slip it in right at the beginning of these four weeks. So we just finished our first year down at the Missionary Training Center down in Missouri, and well, it take too long to talk about what we did, but we're back in Michigan over the summer, and our fourth week together, our last week, we're going to be leaving right after church that Sunday and getting down there for classes starting the next day. So uh, prayers for that would be awesome. Um, anyway, without further ado, this is going to be the outline for the next four weeks that we have together. Today we're basically just going to be tackling one question and talking about that question um, regarding the gospel and what that means for all of mankind. Next week, we're going to jump into a little bit of what our current American culture looks like in the church, and also what the atmosphere of the church around the world is. So then hopefully we can use that as a starting point and draw some parallels between that and what it actually looks like to do evangelism here in Michigan, in Calhoun County, and around the world. And as, as we're trained to be missionaries, which I'm just, when, as we're going through training, I'm finding all these parallels that are like, wow, this, this applies so much overseas, but it also applies right here, right now, in America. So we're going to talk a lot about that, what it means to do evangelism, what it means after people get saved to do discipleship, and to raise up Christ-like disciples. So, our fourth week together, just going to recap everything, kind of bring everything together, hammer it home, and uh, go through Romans 15. So, after this, let's just, I, I want to jump right in, right off the deep end, right at the start. We're going to go through one question for the rest of our time together, but before we, before I ask that question, I want to almost do a disclaimer that if you could, maybe you've thought about this question, maybe you've never thought about this question, maybe you have a very strong opinion, maybe you don't, if you could just hold, hold your judgment back until the end and kind of see where I'm going with it. I'm not claiming to have all the answers here at all, just hopefully opening up this question for maybe further discussion in the future, further thought. I... Yeah, I only have time to go through a couple passages regarding this topic, so. But it really, this topic is the backbone of evangelism, discipleship, and really the church. It's, it's what makes the difference between us being here, gathered as the body of Christ, or a social club, really. So, that question is, is Jesus necessary for people to go to heaven? Are people okay without the gospel? And it might seem like a really basic question, but today's culture seems to think that there's a lot of paths to God. I mean, what about all of the Hindus over in India, or the Buddhists? They live really good lives, and they do a lot of good things, they help a lot of people out. But in the end, they're looking to their own actions, their own works, to make them right with God, to give them a right standing with God. And 
More than that, I think even here in America, we have a tendency to think that way too, maybe deep down, maybe not on the surface, hopefully not here in this room, in this, but as a culture, generally think you can just live a good life, a moral life, you don't kill anybody, you don't do a whole lot of lying, and generally, you, I mean, you donate to charity now and then, generally you're a pretty good person. So, but this question does go deeper than this. It's not just, it doesn't just stop there. And I guess I'd ask the question, why did Jesus come if there are other ways without Jesus? I mean, if everyone can kind of find their own way to God, then there's no need for the Son of God to have come in the first place. And there's another question. Do people believe, need to believe the gospel, or can they get in through Christ's work some other way? And the reason I ask this question is because maybe Christ came and died for the world, but you don't really need to believe. And the reason I'm asking this question is because this is the reality of our world today. We have all of the little red dots are people groups, distinct language groups that represent thousands of people and millions of people in other cases. And all the yellow dots are... Well, I guess all the dots are language groups. The red dots are unreached people groups, unreached language groups that don't have the gospel. They're less than 2% churched, evangelical. And so the reality for 41% of the world's population, this is a very conservative number, 41% of the world's population will live their lives never knowing another person who knows the gospel, much less ever hearing the gospel or believing it themselves. So my question today is, what about all of these people around the world? And, and that's, that goes for our neighbors here. I mean, if we were to draw a one-mile radius from this point right here all the way around this building, there's probably well over a thousand people sitting at home watching TV, maybe sipping on coffee, reading the newspaper, reading a book. And the question I want to ask is, is the gospel necessary for people to spend eternity with God? And the stakes are very significant in that question. Like, what about these people? I, I personally struggled with this question for a really long time, and I still have questions, and I still am trusting God to teach, teach my heart his character and what that means for these people around the world. But the one thing... I, like, this, this number is almost insignificant in the sense that this represents so many lives, individual lives, just like each one of us have our own life, our family, and all of our relatives, all of our friends, like, all of these people have their own circle of friends, their own family that they love. And this question is very real for us because it is very real for them. And that's why I think this question is the foundation that we need to start from when we start talking about discipleship, evangelism, and what it means to be the body of Christ. Like, what's the reality for us here in, in our local area and also around the world? Hopefully that's making sense. Um, anyways, let's jump into some scripture. 
if I haven't confused the topic enough already. So, as I was going through this question, I pulled out a passage. And, and if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be turning to, I think, three different passages today. So you can come out there, uh, pull your Bible out there. So, I wanted to point out one thing with this passage here. Uh, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 5-7. through 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Jesus' first major public recorded presentation to a large crowd of people. And what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is he's going through and changing the status quo, if you will. He's flipping everything on its head. He's going through and talking about how if you, if you even look on a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. If you even thought about murdering someone, you've already murdered them in your heart. And this passage is right in that same context. And what's important and significant about that is that the climate that Jesus was coming into included Jews who thought that they were basically okay with God because of all of their actions and what they were doing for God. They're looking to the law, they're looking to all of these things that they could do to make it to God. And Jesus is coming in, he's flipping that on its head and saying, you know what, it's not everyone's by default able to just do good things and get to God, but it's actually opposite of a wide path. It's a, it's a narrow path of people who actually find the way to God. And, and really, if we bring this kind of a statement into our culture, it kind of bashes heads with the common ideology of what we have in our culture today. Because our culture seems to think that, as I already stated, like if you're generally a good person, I mean, my works will make me enough merit with God that I'll be, God will give me his stamp of approval. I mean, I didn't murder people, I didn't do a lot of sin in my life, and I did a lot of good stuff, so I'll be good. But Jesus is flipping that, that ideology right on its head here. So this is probably the biggest passage in Scripture, or at least the most in-depth and longest passage that addresses this issue. We don't have a whole lot of time to go through this today. So I'm just going to take a few passages and from Romans 1 through 3 and talk about them. But if you guys have a chance in the coming week, in this week, coming week, or maybe the next week, I would really encourage you if, you, if you have more questions about this issue, just start in Romans 1 and just read Romans 1 through 3. And I mean, if you can just continue on through the whole book if you have time. But really, Paul fleshes out this idea of the reality that mankind live in, the destiny of mankind. And he basically addresses three different groups of people in these first three chapters. Um, the first group is people without the gospel, or honestly, it can apply to almost everybody. And then he addressed another group, which I would call the moralists. We'll get to that in a second. And then the third group he addressed are the Jews. So let, let me just read this. So Romans, if you're there in your Bible, you can read it, or I have it up on the screen. Romans 1, 18 through 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
But what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became foolish in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. And what I find extremely significant about this passage is Paul is saying that all of mankind has the witness of creation before them, testifying to who God is. But he doesn't leave it at that. He says that they have turned aside and at the end there, they've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creatures, birds, animals, and creeping things. And basically, if you want to boil that down, they've went from worshiping the creator and recognizing God as the creator and putting creation in its place. And I think this is the same thing that was going on way back then. It's the same thing that happens now. We can look at secular science and see that they're studying creation, they're studying the universe, they're studying microbiology and quantum physics and all these things, and they're looking at the creation trying to explain the origin of the universe. They're automatically starting from the wrong point in trying to define that. They're filling the place of the creator with the creation. And it's the same thing if the people, the Buddhists in any South Asian country are making a golden Buddha and looking to that. They're putting something in the place of the creator or, they're, or maybe it's tribes that are worshiping the sun or worshiping certain spirits or trees. They're worshiping the creation rather than the creator. And in this, I guess I'll, I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm going to move on from there. The second group of people that Paul addresses is the, what I would call the moralist. The person who looks at everyone else around them and says, you know what, I'm not that bad. I'm just going to, I mean, obviously all the people listed in the, well, that's something I didn't say. Let me back up just a second, not to confuse anyone too much. Um, so right, oh, wrong one. Right after this, Paul goes through the rest of chapter 1 and just lists out all of these things that the heathens do since they've exchanged the creation and put that in the place of the creator. They're looking to self rather than to God. And it goes through all these lists of sins and all this messed up stuff that happens. And it goes through, well, I'm just not going to list it all right now. So, What these guys would do would be they'd compare themselves to all these people who would be considered barbarians or heathens, and they'd say, I, I'm better than them. Like, I haven't murdered people. I haven't gone around lying all the time. I haven't gone around committing adultery. Like, I've done a lot of good stuff, and I'm, I'm not doing the stuff that these guys are doing. So I'm basically good with God. And what Paul says about that is, oh, this is... Yes, the start of addressing these guys. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, 
every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourselves, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. And the rest of chapter 2, or most of the rest of chapter 2, he goes down, goes through and just hammers this point home more and more, talking about the law and saying how everyone's condemned because of their own conscience, because of the conscience that's in their heart, and really hammers that point home a lot more. So if you have a chance, you can read it now or read it later. Um, but basically, he's just saying, you know what, you guys are doing the same things that all the heathen are doing, and if you're looking for your own good actions to make yourselves right with God, you're missing the point. Because God is perfect and he's not going to allow sin to just make you good things to make to eliminate your sin. And I, there's so many passages throughout the Bible that we could go through to, to talk about this. But, oh, so this is his summary. This is Paul's summary addressing everybody. So in between here, he addressed the Jews. And what he said to the Jews was, the Jews are looking down on everybody. They're looking down on the heathens. They're looking down on the moralists, the people who would consider themselves better than the heathens. But the Jews are looking down on everybody. They're like, we keep all these laws. We do everything perfectly, just as God commanded. And like, we don't sin at all. But if we ever do sin, we're like doing sacrifices. And we're good with God because of all of our actions. And basically, Paul puts them in the same place as the moralists, saying, and he spends a long time doing it, just going through there and listen, you guys do this, you guys do this, even though you say these guys, you're looking down on these guys for stealing. But you know what? You guys steal too. You guys lie too. And if you're looking to God, to your own good actions, to make you right with God, then you're missing the point. And this is Paul's summary for all three of these groups of people. So this could apply to all of mankind right here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And this is the, his final words in this section, in Romans 1, 118 through 320, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And a passage that I didn't read Back in Romans 2, just a chapter ago, Paul went through talking about people's consciences and how people's consciences within them testify to the, the nature of God and the character of God in their hearts and that that is a law unto themselves. So it's not like they don't have the Jewish law and, and then they're okay. If, as long as they don't have the law, they're okay without, without that. Their consciences testify that they have sinned. And, I mean, we can even look at our own lives in, in that and recognize that even maybe that you don't even know a point in your life where you weren't Christian 
where you weren't a believer, but still there's, there's that conscience in there where you know something's wrong, but you decide to do it anyways. And that's, that's really what Paul's talking about there. And again, that's back in chapter 2. I'm just giving a cursory overview, so if you guys have more questions, would like to study this out, go through Romans 1 through 3 and, yeah, get that down a little more. So, this is probably the most famous passage of the Bible in America and maybe, maybe even in the world, I'm not sure. But we could probably all quote it if we wanted to. Uh, John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. I don't know if there's a more concise summary than that in the entire Bible. And maybe that's why it's a famous passage if you're sharing the gospel, just using that first verse, Romans, or John 3.16. And I mean, we could, it just reminded me, you could, you could also quote, I mean, if you're familiar with the Romans road, you have Romans 3.23 or Romans 5.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And hopefully most of us already understand that and believe that this is, this is the essence of the gospel, is that it is exclusive. It's not, it's, it's exclusive. There's people outside of this. And something to hammer this home a little bit is we always talked about, I mean, you have the word saved up there in verse 17, and we talk about people getting saved all the time. Like we have a bell right here who, we love to ring this when someone gets saved and as a result of the ministry here. And that's an amazing thing. It's a wonderful thing. And, th- and that's why we celebrate it. But something that we might not always talk about is what's the reality of people who aren't saved? Every t- when you say that people are saved, what does it mean to be not saved? What does that mean? And just the very nature of why we're gathered here together in Christ, in the body of Christ, demands that there is something that is the opposite. And even, you notice I have the word perish highlighted up there, and the, word, the words eternal life. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life, that's what we're all trusting and that's what we're all hoping in. As we move on towards that door that we're all going to walk through, death. We're looking to spending eternity with God. But what about those who don't have that hope and are looking to their own actions and looking to themselves to make them right with God? Or maybe they don't even believe in God. Maybe they're living their life in complete rejection of his message. So, I wanted to talk about what hell looks like a little bit. So, I did an extensive study last year. Well, <laughs> it's, it's extremely extensive. It has, I don't know, uh, coming up on 50 pages of notes right now, just on heaven and hell. And that's all of just going through the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
and looking at all the places where hell is described and where heaven is described. And in that, in that study, I found there's a lot of ambiguity. There's just, in the Old Testament, you have hell described as a pit. It's described as Sheol, which there's so many different words describing that. It's described, hell can be described as a place of fire, also can be described as a place of falling, a place of darkness, in everlasting, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of everlasting torment. And no matter where you would land on that, it's, it's, not, it's not a positive place, it's not a positive thing. Like, and, and I do have, my, my theory about hell, which I don't know if there's necessarily time to jump into this right now, but it's literally... If, you, if eternal life means finding absolute, we are finding our place in the universe with God. When we see him face to face, we are satisfied to the fullest extent in our beings because we recognize our place in the universe. Right now, everyone's looking for their place in the universe. Everyone's trying to find their purpose, their meaning in life. But once you are with God in person, you find that he loves you, and therefore you have value, you have meaning, you have purpose in this thing that we call a universe. And I would see hell as the opposite of that. You have what would be considered death or absence of life, separated from God, whether that's described as being in absolute darkness with no organization. God is the only thing that brings organization to our lives and to the creation of the world that we live in. I mean, we can look at the plants, the animals, the trees, just how things grow. And the worst, the worst day we could possibly have on this earth would be nothing in comparison to our best day with a Christless eternity, with a world without organization, without life. So, if I was going to describe hell, it would just be a place without God a place where a soul ceases to have life giving contrast or meaning to its existence. It would be utter nothingness, if you will. And whether it's described as weeping and gnashing of teeth or eternal fire or a never-ending pit, it's without God. And so... The question that I would have, the reason, the reason I bring any of this up is just because as we move toward looking at discipleship and evangelism, like, what's the backbone of missions? This question really is the backbone of missions in a sense. And I could, yeah, I, here I want to jump off and talk about the sovereignty of God and like, he ordains people to salvation. But that, yeah, I don't have time for that. In the end, Jesus has called us as believers, as the church, to make disciples, to spread the gospel. And that's the backbone of us as the church and why we're gathered here today. So, that's another passage which I won't read. This is a conclusion that I put together. Just 
So what does this mean for us today? If heaven and hell are realities, and belief in the gospel is the only way to God, then everyone without this message is under judgment of a just and holy God. And if I can just pause there for a second. One thing when I was contemplating this and I was thinking about it is, a lot of people give God a really bad rap for saying, how could a loving God send people to hell? And I would just say that even in that, God is the ultimate gentleman in that he gave them free will and an opportunity to choose him or to reject him. And even in the very act of him sending them to a Christless eternity, to a godless eternity, he is granting them their very last wish and that is to reject him. And if they have looked to themselves without God, then they are get, then they're pushing, pushing God aside and saying, you know what, I can do it without you. I am enough in and of myself, in and of my own actions. I am enough. And God is giving, granting them that rather than them looking to God and saying, I need you, God. I can't do this thing called life. I can't do enough to make you happy, to make you, to make myself right before you. And in the end, that's, that's what I mean by everyone's going to under the judgment of a just and holy God. So then people who die without the gospel, without believing the gospel, are going to spend eternity separated from God. And really, this is the backbone of the Bible. We have, in the beginning of the Bible, we have the fall of man. You have God creating everything. He's building the trees. He's building the animals. He's building creation. And then you have the fall of man. And every, all the way from that point in the Bible with the fall, all the way through, it's almost like a dip. And then throughout the whole Bible, you're talking about how God is reaching down to man and man is reaching up to God. And, and this is this, this, almost this lace work that's created. And that is the Bible. You have God reaching down and man reaching up and striving together. And that, that's the essence of what the, the biblical message is. This struggle with sin and the struggle with humanity coping with the realities of the fall and God at the same time being sovereignly over it all. So, what the conclusion that I brought that back to is, if this is the reality, then our lives must revolve around this gospel. And the reason I didn't say our lives must revolve around taking the gospel to everyone is because, honestly, in, in Scripture, and we're going to talk about this the last week in Romans 15 and all throughout Paul's epistles, it's, Paul isn't going around preaching, oh, everyone has to go and share the gospel every time they get a chance. Everyone has to go and be proclaiming the gospel. No, that's not the picture we get in Scripture. But at the same time, we are getting a picture that as Christians, as believers in Christ, our lives need to be centered and based in this gospel, in the message of this gospel. And that doesn't mean that we just keep it to ourselves. It does mean that we proclaim it and that we live it out every day. It doesn't mean that we have to move across the world or we have to radically change everything about our lives to reach people with the gospel, although that might not be completely unfounded if you were to do that. So this is 
a quote that I wrote a couple of years ago, and I thought about it when we were, when I was uh, putting this together. And I guess I'll just read it. If the Bible is the inspired word of God, that brings my life into sharp focus on the reality that eternal souls are more valuable than anything else. Everything else will have its end, but eternity will not. And what I mean to communicate with this is when we're considering what our lives are based on and what we're doing with our lives, we need to bring that, when we look at the Word of God, it brings our lives into a sharp focus on what is really important in our lives, and that is eternity, eternal souls. This life is a vapor. It's described so many different ways throughout the Bible as a vapor, a seed of grass that's withering and dying. And, I mean, for those of you who are, I mean, over 20, over 50, over whatever, you know life is just accelerating. Life's getting faster. Life is seeming shorter. And I even feel that. I'm 23, and I don't even know where the last 23 years went. I remember when I was like 10, and I was running around in the woods with a BB gun hunting squirrels. And like, <laughs> it was awesome. But <laughs> still, life is short. And everything else will have its end. Everything in this world, our jobs, our careers, our families, our homes, and every material thing that we could possibly pour our lives into is going to perish. So, when it comes to eternity, then people's souls, relationships, building relationships with people, sharing the gospel with people, and being about seeing people brought in to this joyous relationship with Christ is the most important thing that our lives could possibly be about. So, in saying that, I would just ask if everyone would, yeah, look at your life. What's the focus of your life? Is it more about making yourself comfortable, making, making life better for you or for your family? Or is it about seeing people's eternities impacted forever? And I mean, the default... I, see, I feel the default in my own life and I see the default in just about everybody's lives around me. The default is the path of least resistance. Just kind of find that groove and float it through. But really, that doesn't, that doesn't make sense in light of what we just looked at, in light of the rest of the Bible that I didn't have time to, to look at. Like, if we take this as the inspired word of God seriously, that has significant ramifications for life right now, today, today. 